The Energy Gang is brought to you by Bloom Energy. Bloom Energy is transforming the way businesses and communities take charge of their energy supply through resilient, predictable and zero-carbon solutions. Bloom's on-site energy platform provides unparalleled control for those looking to secure clean, reliable 24-7 power that scales to meet critical business needs. Today's energy challenges are unprecedented and widespread. Bloom's platform eliminates outage and price risk while accelerating us all toward a zero-carbon future. Visit bloomenergy.com slash theenergygang and take charge today. The Energy Gang is brought to you by Hitachi Energy. How is the grid evolving and changing? What does it mean for your business, your energy needs, your customers? Whatever your goals, look to Hitachi Energy for the right technologies to help unlock new revenue streams, maximize renewable integration, and lower carbon emissions. Visit hitachienergy.com slash offering slash solutions slash grid edge solutions. This is The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Ed Crooks. Welcome to the show. This week, we've got a slightly unusual show for you. It's being broadcast as part of Wood Mackenzie's Grid Edge Innovation Series. It's an online event talking about everything that happens at the Grid Edge. Distributed energy resources, EV charging, demand management, smart buildings, and much more. So if you really want to watch us as well as hear us, you can do that. You can find that event and the rest of the Grid Edge Innovation Series via woodmac.com. So our topics today are going to have a Grid Edge flavour to them. We're going to be talking about changing business models for energy retailing. We're going to be talking about financing for new energy technologies. And as this is the last Energy Gang show of the year, we're going to be reviewing the best and the worst of energy in 2021. To discuss these issues, I'm joined this week by Amy Myers-Jaffe, who's Managing Director of the Climate Policy Lab at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Hello, Amy. How are you? You in the holiday uh, mood yet? I am, but my students aren't because it's finals week, so uh, uh, they'll have chair in, in another <laughs> few days. Right, yeah, still that last hurdle to get over. And also I'm joined by uh, Emily Chasen from Generate Capital, the green infrastructure investment firm. Hi, Emily. Good to see you again. Good. Great to see you again. And thanks, Amy, um, taking me back to my college days at Tufts uh, doing those final exams. <laughs> <laughs> good memories rather than bad ones, I hope. <laughs> I would give you an answer. No so, I would give you yeah. an <laughs> well, perhaps we should wait to the end of the podcast and see, right? <laughs> we could uh, hand out the grades then. So look, the first thing we're going to be talking about uh, this time is energy retailing. There's some big changes looming in the way we buy our electricity. Amazon in September launched its smart thermostat, which is very competitively priced. It's available on the Amazon website right now for just $47.99. Google, of course, for a long time has had a smart thermostat, the Nest, but it launched a new product for that in October, which is called Nest Renew. It's a way to use your Nest thermostat to optimize your electricity use to maximize use when energy is uh, cheapest or when it's cleanest, and hopefully then give you uh, an on-average lower bill and cleaner use of of power from the grid. And also we've had Tesla making moves in energy retail. It's recently been approved to be an energy retailer in Texas. It's already an energy retailer in the UK in partnership with Octopus Energy. And Tesla's also been talking about getting into generating power in the UK. So it really feels like now the energy retail landscape is changing very fundamentally. We're getting these names, Amazon, Google, Tesla, all as places that you either can buy your power from or that you could maybe buy your power from in the future. And that feels like a very different world from the world we've been used to, where everyone just buys their power 
from their local utility. So I think it's a great subject to discuss here. Emily, interested in your thoughts. Maybe perhaps could you kick us off with this um, thought about these smart thermostats? As I said, we've been looking at this Amazon product, very competitively priced, um, looks like a potential toehold, I guess, in the energy retail world for Amazon. Can you explain what is the significance of the smart thermostat? Yeah, well, I guess this is part of that trend that we've been talking about, consumers getting more control over their energy and just having more ownership of it. And if you look at, you know, the home heating market, households consume 29% of global energy and contribute about 21% of emissions globally in carbon dioxide. So the most energy for households is used in heating and cooling. So this is like a place where you can have a major impact. And with smart summer tests, you can have it pretty cheaply. So you know, you look at Nest, you look at big tech coming into the energy space. Um, it's a place where you can have artificial intelligence come in there, um, where you can sort of set it and forget it, where you can automate. Um, so it's pretty natural for tech companies to get in there. Google was probably the earlier one into the market with the Nest. Um, they said that in studies, probably customers save 10 to 12% on heating and 15% on cooling. So it's probably like pays itself out in the first year of operation. Um, if it's even cheaper at $47 for Amazon, well, then that's like pretty quick payback on that. So I think a lot of people are going to be interested in that. And temperature is just something we've sort of always struggled to figure out whether, you know, everybody in the office is always too hot or too cold. Or I live in New York and you see people controlling their temperature by opening a window and you think that's literally emissions just going out the window, <laughs> right? And so we need to get more energy efficient. We need to figure out how to wait list. And this is actually how um, smart thermostats were even invented was Warren Johnson was like a professor in Wisconsin. He was frustrated with the temperatures in his classrooms and he had to call a building janitor to fix the basement furnace. And that frustration led him to create the first electric thermostat in about the 1800s, um, 1883. So that's an area where that, that he sort of went on to found Johnson Controls, right? And that's where this came from um, in this sort of smart energy space. But we've obviously come a huge way today having these like little tiny smart thermostats you can plug into your house system. It's probably a one to two billion market today. That's why the tech companies are starting to get in there. It'll probably be a 10 to 11 billion market the next five years. We just saw Generac Holdings um, by Ecobee, which is another manufacturer of energy solutions and smart thermostats and home monitoring. And um, you know, there's Honeywell's in that space, there's Nest, there's Amazon. It's just this great space where technology and energy can come together. And um, probably the last thing I'd say about this spot is that it's actually a huge issue in financing, because when you look at energy and you look at the, like financed emissions um, and what banks have been trying to get a hold of is like what emissions they're actually financing in the world, mortgages are one of the biggest line items on a balance sheet of a bank. So they just don't know... Um, what is what that is like you if you gave a mortgage 20 years ago to somebody and it's still on your balance sheet like you don't know if that's an energy efficient house necessarily so having this data is something that will probably give a lot more information about the impacts we're having in the world and what we what we're financing as well uh, that's a really fascinating point yeah i hadn't even thought about that we i want to get on to the issue of data and and what gets used what the data gets used for and potential concerns about the use of data in a moment but just kind of jumping back to your point, as you say, about New York apartment buildings and the problems with centralized heating. I remember someone telling me a story once about Ukraine and about buildings that had centralized heating systems where people would be running the heating and the air conditioning simultaneously. And I remember sort of laughing at that and thinking, oh, how ludicrous that is. And then I moved to New York and I live in a building where we do exactly that. And it, it does seem 
it's amazing. And actually, we've been doing it just, just we haven't actually had our aircon on, but just in these past um, few weeks, as temperatures have been unseasonably mild, we're having a mild winter, but the building's heating is on, we've been opening all the windows because we have to do that. So as you say, it is clear there have to be some smarter ways to deal with this. I wondered, uh, Emily, your thoughts about how far this goes for some of these companies. As I said, it's it sort of um, companies are selling these thermostats. The thermostats are very exciting technology, potentially have a, a huge contribution to make. Where does it end, do you think? Does it end with effectively Google and Amazon becoming energy retailers? Is that something they're really going to want to do? Or are we going to see new kinds of business models emerge for energy retailing? What's the kind of natural evolution of this market would you expect? Yeah, well, I think having transparency into the space is probably what the tech companies are after. You know, being able to know when someone's in their car, when they're home, when they're on the way home. Um, that's probably information that could be used for a lot of things in the future. It's something that I think we definitely have to think about as we go into the space, like how what the privacy and what the controls are around that information. I think Amy's nodding because she wants to talk about that too. But um, yeah, there's all these amazing technologies that we have for energy efficiency in your home right now, heat pumps, combined heat and power, integrated solar, rooftop solar, all these amazing technologies. And some are still kind of expensive to install, but a smart meter is so cheap and easy to install. It's like you can just start wasting less immediately, right? So the payback is so quick on it. Um, I think that that's something that will make it really valuable. Like if we just went about things and said, well, how do we waste less first? Because there's going to be more demand for energy. There's going to be more demand for electricity as we electrify everything. Um, it's set to go up. So we want to have stable electricity service. And if we just use less and we're using the optimal amount of energy, um, that would be better. Poor electricity service is a consistent problem around the world. And these type of technologies, these smart meters can actually improve grid stability. They can give utilities information. It can be like a two-way street. They could, if you go all the way to the internet of things, you could, you know, turn off or turn down some appliances um, when there's like kind of going to be a crisis. So um, this is a place where there's a lot of opportunity to um, just use information to be more efficient. Yes, yeah, so Amy, what's your take on this then? How important do you think these new kind of smart thermostats and similar technologies well, I, are? I think it could be very important. You know, I, as you know, Ed, my book, Energy's Digital Future, I have a chapter called Alexa, Beam Me Up Some Energy. And that's really about, you know, how these tools could get us you know, towards our climate goals, towards using energy in a more efficient way, and also promoting renewables. So if I, if I can automate, and, you know, now companies like Google and Amazon, um, they track their energy consumption at their data centers. They give their, you know, stakeholders a readout on how much renewables they're using. They've committed to go to 100% renewables. They're doing PPAs to buy and install, you know, commission someone to put in, you know, utility scale renewables for their operations. So, you know, once I have all that data, and I'm sure that, you know, utilities like PG&E also have that data, but they're not actualizing it. So if I'm, if I'm going to be able to set my house and I want to tell you that I'm going to try to do as much as possible at noon when the sun, when we're curtailing solar, or I'm willing to shift to charge my car at night when wind is at its peak, you know, I can smooth out some of the duck curve or some of the intermittency of renewables just, you know, at the edges, at the edges. And when I combine that with batteries, you know, it becomes a pretty powerful tool. So I think in the end, somebody's going to give me a interface where I can 
pick the renewable option and try to actually do something active about supporting renewables. Um, you know, if Amazon's going to do that for me, um, or Google's doing that for me, then, you know, if I'm, you know, straight white, plain bread utility uh, in Florida or in Massachusetts or, you know, in California, and I'm not offering that service, um, you know, I'm going to be under pressure. Yeah, that's a fascinating point. So, in fact, in a sense, you could say what we're seeing um, with these smart thermostats is disintermediation. At the end of the day, then, it may not matter so much um, who's actually generating the power and where any more than it matters who's publishing the book that's sold through Amazon or who's manufacturing the clothing or whatever else you're, bu- is you're buying through Amazon. Your primary relationship is with a thermostat provider, and that's the um, well, that's the point and it's that getting, you care yes, about as a consumer. And that's correct. where the data is. Well, Sorry, well, go on. It, it, gets, it gets to be very complicated because if, if it's Tesla and they're willing to put a solar panel on my house and then give me a little battery in the house and they're going to then automate everything and I'm going to be able to, like, you know, really maximize my services, this is the question. I'm probably not going to be willing to give my get rid of my backup connection to the uh, grid because I'm going to be afraid. And I think we're going to come to a moment in time when people are going to have to ask themselves the following question. There's a storm moving through my community. And do I trust my utility to restore my service quickly? Or am I more likely to trust one of these tech companies? And, you know, we all complain about utilities, but in a country like the United States, you know, you got the power crews coming out and they're in many communities, they're like pretty reliable in terms of getting you to the restoration as fast as possible. But now that's going to be like a competitive, you know, mantle. Like, who do I really want to be responsible for restoring my facilities, you know, if something goes wrong? And I I think that that competition opens up a really interesting view of how electricity could move fundamentally in the future. Yeah, that's a really good point, Amy. I think utilities have not like historically been known for customer service um, in the same way that these tech companies are today. And so if you're having a customer interface and you're giving customers more power over their their energy, then maybe you want a company that's really good at um, doing that interface and providing user experience to be part of it. So that is a great If the utility is using I... my data to prevent me, to help them not modernize and to lobby, you know, uh, government to protect them. Um, you know, that's not a good use of my data. But then, you know, I'm not sure, like, as it is, I feel uncomfortable that, you know, the, all these tech companies, they know what I'm eating, they know what I'm buying, they know what I'm watching on television. So now they're going to know when I'm putting on my light, what temperature I feel comfortable in. Like, it just seems overwhelming to me how much information they're going to have. What if they can yeah, find so the this right, is this- perfect sweater for you, Amy? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, but seriously, then. So this is the real issue, which I wonder about with all this, which is people talk about data and privacy concerns. And as you say, then these companies will know even more about you, you know, what your movements are, when you go to bed, as you say, what you're eating, when you're out of the home, all of this kind of stuff. Question, is this the kind of the last straw? Is this the kind of the bridge too far for all this kind of data collection? Or in fact, is it just another thing we're going to get used to. We've be, we've become so used now to handing over so much of our personal data and information about us to big tech companies that actually the incremental amount that's involved 
in moving to these kind of energy supplies, moving to the use of smart thermostats, it's not going to be a big deal for people. I mean, what do you if think? If you I mean, sat Amy, out in a blackout, if you've been in a blackout recently and realized you couldn't do banking, if you if you didn't have cash, you couldn't buy food, you know, when you start to see all the things that can affect you, then I start to worry about, yeah, these entities going to be bigger than the government that's supposedly protecting me. And And I don't know. I mean, that worries me. It seems to work in a democracy because we feel like these tech companies are very, um, they, they are helping me pick out my sweater and they're, they're picking out a, a cute gift for the, a baby. But, you know, in an authoritarian setting, I won't name any names, but we can all imagine what giant country I'm thinking of that uses facial recognition software to prevent people from dissenting. Uh, you could understand it could be a very dangerous thing. Yeah, no, that, that's a great thought, actually. Yeah, that's a fair point. Yeah. So, uh, but, uh, and Emily, what people about you? People are getting you? really you con- used to it. Yeah. Are you concerned about this? Is this something you worry about? Um, people are getting really used to a certain amount of transparency. I'm not sure that this is the area where, you know, I have to be super concerned about heating and cooling information. Um, there's probably other areas like facial recognition that you want more control over. Um, I think when you look at this space, um, and like the ability of AI to come in and optimize our energy use is just very, very high. And, you know, I wrote an article years ago when I was at Bloomberg, we asked this question, you know, what's the marginal benefit of a artificially intelligent connected toothbrush, you know, like, do we really need to be running AI models that are like running a car um, (laughs) from an energy use standpoint for a toothbrush, right? But like, to do it on smart thermostats where we have so much heating and cooling going into the atmosphere, that seems like a pretty decent trade-off. So I think a lot of people would make that trade-off to save money and um, have affordable affordability and have control over their their energy. So um, I think the trade-off is really the question there. Yeah, no, I, I think I agree with that. And I do think it's a fascinating point, uh, Amy, that you just raised about, as you say, the uh, centrality of power now to our lives becoming even greater when having connectivity, having devices that will work is so absolutely central to everything we do. All the services that are provided that way, just being able to to get food to stay alive, all of these things now rely on power, even to a great extent now that they did uh, 20 years ago, which makes uh, resilience, reliability of supply all that much more important. That is a That is a fascinating point. And a really interesting theme, I think, for, uh, for us to be thinking about. So I want to come on now to this question of the SPAC. The uh, SPAC is a financing structure that's become increasingly popular for gridage companies and for many other clean energy businesses. Uh, SPAC stands for Special Purpose Acquisition Company, and it's really a financing structure that's been booming over the past couple of years. But it's also been raising some concerns. I saw Gary Gensler, chair of the SEC, last week floated a series of regulatory changes that he'd like to see for SPACs, changing things like the way they market themselves, what they have to disclose, and so on. So let's get into this question. as a fairly kind of technical issue in terms of SPACs and and, uh, the effects they have and the role they play in the financial system. So I think it's worth probably... Uh, trying to unpack it quite carefully first about just for a start what exactly a SPAC is. Um, 
Amy, do you want to um, tell us a little bit about that? As I say, it's a, it's a term that's used a lot. It's a term that uh, is increasingly becoming uh, a kind of a buzz phrase in uh, uh, financial jargon. What is a SPAC and what is it? Well, I like to tell people when you're thinking about a SPAC, so your listeners may be familiar with initial public offering where we're taking a, a startup or a company that's starting to get momentum and we're going to launch it into the public market so we can buy the stock and it can raise capital that way. So think of a SPAC as sort of speed dating IPO, right? So instead of having to go through all the regulatory hurdles and all the disclosures and the 10,000 stacks of papers and lawyers and investment bankers uh, to take a small company public, um, we're going to have this vehicle where it's a, 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 a unit and we're going we're gonna, to blank check. Um, it's, when I, it trades, it goes, it goes public. Uh, a lot of times at $10 a share. And then we have the clock ticks. We got two years to stick a company into it. And then at the end of that time, we quote unquote despack it. When we despack it, if I'm an early investor, I might have been given the right to buy a warrant to own, you know, into the company we're going to put in the SPAC. Um, but it's basically a way of acquiring or merging with a, a startup firm. And there have been 36 clean tech SPACs this year, maybe more. Popular companies we probably have heard of, EVgo is a SPAC. The other thing about SPACs is because I'm just buying shares in something and I don't even know what's going to go in it, uh, then I have to have like a celebrity SPAC leadership team, right? So EVgo, which many people have heard of, you know, got the former uh, chairman of BP to be on the SPAC leadership team. So you're betting on these leaders, these celebrity investors, you know, the Rice Brothers uh, from, e- that, from EQT, looking at carbon sequestration or renewable energy, or, the, uh, or David Crane, who was, you know, very well known for trying to push NRG into solar and, and other uh, renewables. So these kind of important investors are connected with the SPAC structure um, and so it seems like this fantastic opportunity. You're getting into the ground floor at ten dollars, and if the you know it becomes Tesla with a one trillion dollar you know valuation someday, you were in at ten bucks. Uh, you know the problem is you know there's no guarantee that you put the Tesla into that hole. And of course, the most famous like SPAC scandal was that Nikola, the truck firm, you know put themselves in a SPAC. And then they put out a video to promote the investors of the truck. They kind of like pushed it downhill and it wasn't actually moving on its own momentum. Um, so it was sort of like a fake news video about their, their truck technology. And it caused this huge commotion about the regulations of SPACs and, and, and do they have enough authenticity in the kinds of things that the founders and the pushers of these SPACs are saying, because it's not going through that intensive regulatory diligence um, that we find in the IPO process. Yeah, good. So you, you use the expression blank check. Uh, that's something people quite often call them, right? They're blank check companies. Essentially what they're saying is, hey, we're smart people. You can trust us. Give us some money. We will invest that into a business that is exciting and promising and is going to show great growth. But it does put a lot on those individuals and their trustworthiness. Trust is a really important part of the SPAC process. I mean, listen, there are rules for SPACs and there are, you know, legal documents and so forth. 
But I think the point is, it is considered a little bit of a shortcut to IPO. It's not as rigorous as doing a formal IPO. And that can have a benefit sometimes because, you know, when the market is in, insecure, like under COVID or with Omicron or, you know, some kind of commotion, it's hard to launch a company. So in the clean tech space, it's been extremely important. I mean, the list of companies, very important companies in the battery space and in, in the uh, electric truck space um, and, and so forth. But, you know, the, they're probably right. It probably does need some more uh, regulation. And, um, and there, there does need to be some rules about claims you can, can't make. And then, of course, if I invest in a SPAC and they put an asset into the SPAC that's too inflated already, um, then I'm not going to make any money. And a lot of people have lost a lot of money in SPACs in the last couple of years. But on balance, though, it sounds like your verdict is reasonably positive. I mean, you think that despite those kind of drawbacks, SPACs are still an important part of the financing ecosystem for clean energy. I think they are. And I I think that realistically, um, if you really care about clean energy and you're thinking of making a SPAC, then you should do your diligence um, to create a structure for the SPAC uh, that's going to be successful. And so, you know, part of the problem we've seen in SPACs is some of the structures allow the founder of the SPAC to make money and then everybody else loses money. Um, and that does harm to the, the, the means of, you know, convincing people that it's a good structure and we can, like, accelerate. You know, everything about is bending the curve, accelerating. Um, and so, you know, oftentimes in the world of finance, you know, if you think about my Enron days, Enron watching days, not all of the ideas Enron had were bad, they just weren't well executed, um, and they weren't executed uh, uh, fairly or with a proper design. So I think SPACs is kind of the same thing. It, it needs to be uh, regulated well. It needs to be overseen well. And then investors uh, need to do their homework on whether the structure is one that's going to uh, lead them to a good, good outcome. Yeah, good. So, Emily, what's your take on this? I mean, to that point about SPACs being a useful part of the clean energy infrastructure and the clean energy financing infrastructure. Um, How do you see it? Do you think they're valuable and play a useful role? Yeah, well, I guess we've definitely seen like a boomlet in um, clean energy SPACs. There's been a boom in SPACs generally, right, in the pandemic, but clean energy, obviously, I think since you know, March 2020, when the pandemic started, I saw there are 70 different SPAC deals that were tied to renewable energy and sustainability. And, you know, I actually used to write about IPOs for a while. Um, It's a totally different process, right? When you're doing a billion dollar IPO cross country roadshow, you have to like show a lot of investors the profit plan, you have to attract analysts. Like, I mean, in the pandemic, that wasn't really as available, right? Like people weren't doing cross country roadshows and big conference halls in the same way. So you look at the SPACs and you say, well, this is a faster way to market. Um, IPOs have never actually really recovered their grand days from the 1990s, right? Like you remember when there were all those 1990s, like pets.com IPOs going up at like 400%, you know, the IPO process has never been perfect. Um, and people have struggled to IPO in the same way. So there, I think it's pretty natural that in, this was a time when the SPAC process got a really close look. And when you look at the overall like energy financing spectrum, clean energy companies spend a tremendous amount of time raising money right now. Um, there's so many different types of financing they need. And, you know, they're also 
also need to be deploying at a really rapid pace. So I can imagine, you know, some companies saying, you know, this is a good thing. Let's get that taken care of. Let's get the access to capital that we need and let's spec, do it in a fast process and then like pay attention to deploying all the technology that we need to be deploying. Um, So I think that, you know, it's an interesting development. It's the jury's still out on whether it's perfect. You know, clearly like there are places where corners get cut in a spec versus an IPO. But like, even if you look at like, IPOs this year, half of 2021's IPOs are below their offering price. You know, it's not a perfect market either. And so I, I don't to think make we should one be correction. so It's actually that. David Crane's SPAC uh, that picked up EVgo. So just making that clarification. Oh, right. No, well, thanks very much. Thanks for clarifying that. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's good to know. Well, that's a good point too, Amy, that like when people come in and the management team that you can trust, you know, versus, you know, the IPO roadshow with the bankers, you know, it's just a different analysis, I think. And what is that? A, is that a better thing? Do you think? I mean, sometimes, as you say, oh, there's some individuals who are who have such great reputations, such great track records. You'd be more inclined to trust them than you would a PowerPoint, as you say, from from a set of investment bankers that are trying to sell the company. It's got to be a really individual kind of thing. I think people still have to do their homework. And the structure matters. Oh, you know, you want to be so investing think- in something where if you win if the organizer wins. And that goes to whether you're an investment bank with an IPO or whether, you know, it's a SPAC structure. You want to have the, you, you want to be aligned with yeah, the founders. I see, I, I see what you mean. And I guess, Emily, going back to your point about SPACs playing a role, I think you used the word deployment there. Of course, notoriously, there is the issue of the value of death, which is between, at some point between startup and large scale deployment, and it's very hard for companies to get across that. And it's easy to get financed at a little startup. And it's easy once you're in the Dow Jones or your Tesla or Apple, you can raise all the financing you want. And at some point in between there, things are really difficult. And I guess it's exactly that point, that stage where you're going to be IPOing. You're going to be coming to the stock market, getting yourself a broad base of investors, raising the kind of capital you need for large-scale deployment of whatever it is you're doing, that's exactly the area that's often difficult for a lot of clean energy companies. That's the area, I guess, that SPACs can really help with. Yeah, well, and I guess, you know, the pendulum always swings in finance. You know, there'll be a ton of one type of transactions and the market will sort of freeze up in that. And then maybe it'll go back at like a more stable pace where where it really makes sense. And people have really evaluated that this is the right tool for that company to go public. I mean, the jury's still out on whether this is the right tool, but you can sort of see where in a pandemic this this made a lot of sense where and also in clean energy, it makes a lot of sense where um companies don't have the same type of track record because people haven't been deploying this type of energy that, you know, IPO markets are are used to in those roadshows and used to seeing, you know, it's a different kind of scale where there's like new incentives and new, um, new structures coming on all the time. So you're, the future is not going to be the same as the past when you're a clean energy company and the, the architect of the archetype of growth is going to look a little bit different. Um, they're going to have different kinds of growth curves. And so maybe it is a good time to use this kind of tool um, that lets companies get capital faster, and we'll and, just you know, if you're a pension uh, fund, you, maybe out. you were going to park some cash in treasuries anyway, or something like that. You're parking it in the SPAC. You're they're buying treasury bills, so uh, you know, at the end of the process, when it despacs, you can just take your money back, or you can exercise your warrant. So there's some upside. Um, so I, I do think people are kind of interested in it. And you know, if you think about television shows like Shark Tank, you know, 
this is like the structure of Shark Tank, right? I, I'm betting that because Mark Cuban thinks this is a good investment, that you know people will buy that widget, right? And so you're kind of you know kind of like taking the momentum to these founders, to these founders to be able to um, give them an ecosystem that's going to help them, as as uh, Emily and you were saying, get out of the valley of death and really be able to scale up. So final thought from you, maybe, uh, Amy, on this, which is, to Emily's point, she was saying, you know, the jury is still out to an extent on SPACs. They've been phenomena to a large extent of the pandemic. And perhaps there are then very uh, obvious reasons why they've been more favoured during the pandemic than they might have been. Do you think they have a lasting future? Do you think they are going to continue to be a very important part of the financing structure for clean energy? Or have they just been a slightly sort of anomalous factor for a while? And you think beyond this, we're ultimately going to head back to a more conventional IPO type structure being more popular? Well, or it could be something we haven't thought about yet. Now, remember, a lot of public money is going to come into the sector um, over the next couple of years because of uh, the infrastructure bill and green stimulus in Europe and China still investing. Um, so so I, I think people are looking for, you know, creative ways of uh, financing. You have a lot of institutional investors chasing, you know, climate solutions. Um, and so you, you know, have a little bit of a frenzy. I, I think actually the investing in, um, in this space in general, in, the, in public equity, so in the stock markets, people tell me it's as crowded. What do I mean by crowded? Like the preponderance of people following this theme is actually apparently at the same level as the height of the dot-com boom. And I'm not saying it's going to end the same way. I think there's a lot of really good fundamentals behind it. And of course, we even know with the dot-com phase, I mean, we just had a whole session on how much the tech companies have integrated into our lives. So I think it's the right trend and hopefully it's going to bring us the right kinds of solutions. But I think you're going to see more public-private partnerships and maybe that doesn't lend itself to the SPAC framework. Um, and so, you know, it'd be interesting to see uh, what new kinds of financing mechanisms people come up with because there are a lot of people been burned in the SPACs. Yeah, that's a really interesting thought. Sorry, Emily, you wanted to last word on this? Yeah, I think people are going to, you know, I don't want to bet, Ed, on going back to something conventional. I think once you've gone to some non-conventional route that's disruptive, people don't always go back. But when you look at this space, you know, it's it's like another tool in the kit. Um, it, maybe it'll make sense for people. It'll be really interesting to watch how these clean energy companies adjust to being sort of public companies um, and how that adds into the growth of the sector, um, probably doing that a little bit faster than they would have without having gone through the IPO process. So um, that's really, I think, the thing to watch. Yeah, that's really interesting. The financial sector, I guess, like the energy sector, is a great source of innovation. People are always throwing up new kinds of ideas and new ways to uh, to raise money for businesses. So uh, certainly, as you say, it's going to be important to keep watching that and to see how that develops and the one thing we can say is there are bound to be further innovations in that beyond what we've got at the moment. And I guess as the problems with one type of financing structure become apparent, new ones emerge to try and address those problems. So yeah, uh, as I say, given that we can see there are some pretty clear ideas with um, <clears throat> pretty clear concerns rather with specs, it's certainly going to be interesting to see what uh, Wall Street and the finance industry in general does to address those. 
The Energy Gang is brought to you by Bloom Energy. Bloom Energy is accelerating the hydrogen economy by partnering with industry leaders to produce clean, green hydrogen. Bloom's electrolyzer uses electricity and heat from a variety of clean energy sources, such as concentrated solar power, solar panels and nuclear power, to generate green hydrogen at the scale needed to tackle today's urgent climate crisis. Bloom's pioneering solid oxide fuel cell platform leverages technology originally developed for Mars and it's uniquely designed to decarbonize our world's hardest to abate sectors. Bloom's platform has the flexibility to be deployed as a distributed generator of electricity or as an electrolyzer to produce green hydrogen. Learn more at bloomenergy.com slash the energy gang. The energy gang is brought to you by Hitachi Energy. The grid is evolving and changing every day, but the fundamentals haven't. Safe, reliable power is needed everywhere. No matter where you are, battery energy storage paired with advanced controls and software can improve resilience and efficiency. With gridage solutions from Hitachi Energy, you can integrate solar or wind to reach your sustainability goals while managing energy costs. It's all achievable with our innovative gridage solutions. Learn more at hitachienergy.com slash offering slash solutions slash grid hyphen edge hyphen solutions. So, last item, I want to talk about 2021. That was the year that was. It was obviously a year totally shaped by the pandemic and the continuing struggle to fight that. But it was also a really fascinating year in energy and a number of very significant developments happened that are absolutely going to change the future of energy around the world. We debated for a little bit how we were going to address this and what we're going to do in terms of doing our kind of top 10 or whatever it would be of energy in 2021. In the end, we've done done just a top five. We should probably put, we have got a top 10. We should probably put that on the website as well so people can see that. And it's also, I should make clear, I think the top five is not necessarily saying that these are good things necessarily or things we approve of, but this is our top five in terms of significance. These are the five developments that we thought between us in our collective judgment, we had our own kind of individual lists and then pulled them to have one kind of consensus view. This is our consensus view of the five things that were most important for the world of energy and will have the most lasting significance for the years and decades to come. So we're going to count them down um, in reverse order, um, in traditional style. I think number five, Amy, you were going to talk about. So number five is development and energy storage. Is well, that right? Yes. So I think 2021 was the year of long duration storage. So we kind of saw the limits of a four hour battery uh, in many locations. So the question was, uh, what's the solution? And we saw, you know, innovation come forward. So uh, more discussion and companies in in ear iron batteries or other kinds of uh, batteries that can store electricity and be stacked uh, for days, if not longer. Hydrogen's had its new rebirth. Hydrogen, like everybody and their brother is talking about green hydrogen, green hydrogen from offshore wind in Denmark. Green hydrogen is part of the Biden uh, infrastructure bill. So hydrogen, you know, may have found its time. And I'm even hearing uh, natural gas companies talking about pivoting to hydrogen as the future proofing of their businesses. So, uh, So I think hydrogen's found its time. 
and then, you know, there's also um, just perfecting virtual power plants. So that's when I have a community or an apartment building or a bunch of individual uh, businesses that have a battery storage element to their their space, their building space or their household space. And I give some third-party vendor or the utility the right to a, a legal right to some percentage, maybe 30% of the battery. And then when we have a event, a heat wave event or some other kind of event that might have led to a brownout, those different 30% of everybody's little battery are aggregated together to serve sort of like as a, a backup power station. Yeah, no, I have to say in terms of long duration storage, I've been very uh, excited about form energy. Obviously, early days yet, but it has for a long time been clear that lithium-ion systems, which are sort of dominant for energy storage on the grid and behind the meter at the moment, those systems have very severe limitations. You know, you're talking about uh, up to four hours of storage typically, which is fine and can play a useful role. But when you talk about things like uh, what we saw in the Texas power crisis, when you had a sustained period of wind, low wind output across a huge part of the US, covered by low wind output for about 12 days, a four-hour battery system is no good for that. And so when you have Form Energy talking about how they have storage systems that may work for 100 hours, uh, may be good to, to provide storage for 100 hours, that is a potential real game changer in terms of uh, backing up variable renewables on the grid, making it possible to have much higher levels of renewable energy penetration. Uh, Emily, what are your thoughts on storage? Is there something you've been watching? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think this is an area sort of like wind and solar now storage right now. We've got the renewables online and we need the storage out there to sort of add some consistency into the grid. And this has been an area where, you know, investors have gotten really comfortable with the space. There's probably 10 times the capacity of battery storage, large-scale utility storage scale batteries today than in 2019, according to the EIA. And then, you know, battery storage costs are down 72% in the past five years. Um, And the energy department set a goal in July of reducing the cost of grid scale long duration energy storage by 90% within a decade. So there's a lot of push on that cost curve to bring down the cost of battery storage. Um, There's a lot more comfort in deploying battery storage. um, And there's a lot more options for resiliency and sort of grid um, operations and the ability to use battery storage um, throughout the world now. So I think um, that's really a big trend this year that we've sort of seen it mature and um, that space is going to be one to watch for a lot of deployment in the coming years. Sure. So uh, Emily, you've got on number four as well, I think. What's that? Oh, yeah. So we're talking about net zero, right, is number four. Um, and all these net zero goals that have come out. And this was probably the big year of net zero. And um, I know when I first started writing about net zero, we had this joke that net zero means not zero. <laughs> um, so people are still trying to figure out what exactly net zero means, but we are seeing a huge amount of commitment to the concept. Um, so the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, um, created by Mark Carney, that was big news at COP26. There's over 450 members. Um, they have $130 trillion in institutional capital committed to achieving net zero, um, committed to you know making progress on that front. And like, understanding where their financed emissions are and whether they're really reducing emissions in their activities. So I think that whole commitment to net zero, that's sort of the next phase in the way we're going to be reporting and writing about clean energy for sure. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And also just the the countries um, 
setting these net zero goals. I mean, as you say, you can be as skeptical as you like about whether they'll actually achieve them and implement those goals. But you do now have countries responsible for the vast majority of the world's emissions. On our calculations, I think it's 88% of the world's emissions. Uh, those countries have set a net zero goal of one kind, or one kind or another, typically for 2050 or 2060. I think you know the point where you've got even Saudi Arabia setting a net zero goal for 2060, um, that really is an indicator of how much the world has changed in terms of having a global focus on climate policy, a global interest in decarbonisation. And I do think that's very significant. Uh, Amy, what, what's your take on the climate well, goals? Well, you know, hopefully uh, we're going to like match action with, uh, with pledge. Uh, so, you know, devil's in those details. Uh, and talking about details, you know, I, I like to sit down when companies and others uh, uh, ask me about uh, net zero I always try to explain to people because it's going to really shake up carbon markets because we're used to talking about carbon avoidance credits, right? So I'm going to pay someone to avoid emissions. But now we're talking about paying someone for removals. So I'm actually going to take carbon out of the atmosphere. And and when a company says, because Microsoft is, some of the companies are far along, um, in thinking through, you know, how would they implement um, uh, markets for removals? Um, now we're talking about something much more complicated. I'm talking about literally direct air capture, some kind of technology that's going to take carbon out of the sky and either mineralize it to bury it or, or sequester it some other way. I'm talking about some kind of biofuel solution. We call it BEX in the trade, where I'm going to... Um, marry together some kind of bioenergy with sequestration. And so I'm going to have a truly negative footprint um, in, in, in my operation. So, um, you know, it's easy to say you're going to go out and um, buy a credit from someone who put together a, um, a renewable energy installation somewhere, you know, in, in, in India or in South Africa. But now I'm talking about actually paying someone to remove carbon from the atmosphere or do it myself. Uh, and I think that's going to be a much harder lift, both for governments and for uh, corporations. Yeah, as Emily was just saying, the net in net zero is really important and often underappreciated just how uh, significant and how difficult in some cases that's going to be. I, I do think that's right. Oh, can I just add on that, Amy, that that's a really good point that um, I think we're looking at these net zero goals and we're saying, okay, we have to reduce emissions, we have to get there. And we sort of know how to reduce emissions, but we haven't sort of thought about how to capture them out of the atmosphere. And, you know, it's not as simple as going to plant trillions of trees, you know, like not every company can go do that. We were going to run out of land if we plant all those trees. So um, I think and, and some it's going to be really interesting say, to see how that evolves. And some good enough because you're just pretending, you're just saying you can't eliminate your emissions, so you're pretending that there's some net, you know, some net voodoo thing you're going to be able to do at the end of the process, and maybe we really actually need to be salute, finding solutions for heavy industry and so forth. So it, it's, you know, the jury's still out on on how this is going to take place. So Emily, your next one, I think, was uh, green stimulus. 
Yeah, let's talk about screen stimulus. So um, that's the big thing coming out of the pandemic is, um, you know, we saw that emissions went down in the pandemic when people had to stay at home. We also saw government say, okay, well, we're going to try and stimulate the economies. We're going to come out and we're going to do green stimulus. So there's green recovery measures across Asia, Europe, North America, already over $336 billion announced according to the OECD. Um, there's investment into sustainable infrastructure alongside that coming in. Um, we're seeing the Build Back Better bills. We're seeing the green recovery bills in Europe. Um, all of that, I think, is going to make a big difference in this space. Um, it's still not quite enough. You know, it's a huge amount of money, but the UN estimates the collective cost of stopping global warming by 2050 is $50 trillion. So we still need to be accelerating even from there. But um, I definitely think that the green stimulus will be um, something that will kickstart a bunch of stuff going forward. So maybe it's move straight on to number two, Amy, this is something that you were actually tangentially involved in, isn't it? This is our pick for number two is the successive, uh, the success of Engine Number One, the small investment company, in getting three directors appointed to the ExxonMobil board um, against the objections of the ExxonMobil uh, current directors. Amy, well, yeah, tell us a bit about this. You you were involved a bit, and why do you well, think it's so important? Well, 2021 was definitely the year when activists got the upper hand on climate challenges to fossil fuel companies. And back when we were all locked down, uh, this uh, very well-known activist, Charles Penner, came to me and he said, listen, could you help me? I'm trying to gear up in understanding why the oil sector and specifically the big companies have had poor performance over the years and, and how would you think about changing that? So I began to help him. I mean, I do have a, you know, we professors, some of us do consulting on the side. So I, I helped him. And then, you know, time passes on and we, you know, remained a, a chatty. And he came to me and said, uh, we're going to have this opportunity. We're going to try to get board seats at ExxonMobil. And, you know, here's how we're doing it. And he asked me my opinion. And I thought, oh, my God, well, if I could put one person in the world on ExxonMobil's board, like who would be both helpful uh, and constructive, right? Because, uh, you know, just putting Greta Thunberg on Exxon's board won't necessarily lead to um, the company making a pivot. They need to have the technology, knowledge, and and, and understand what's coming in the market, like our show about Amazon and Tesla and those moving into electricity. Um, and so I came up with the idea of a, a gentleman that I've done a lot of collaborating with, Andrew Karshner, who is a space cowboy at Google, was an early investor in Nest, and um, also uh, was on the board of Applied Materials, so knows a lot about material science and what's coming down the pike, um, and had been in the wind industry uh, in Texas. So I felt like he might culturally fit. Um, and uh, he got a seat on Exxon's board, uh, you know, maybe against all odds uh, because of the hard work of a lot of really active shareholders who really care about uh, the future. So, Emily, I know you also picked this as one of your most significant events of 2021. To play devil's advocate here, is it really that important? I feel like um, uh, Exxon is not radically changing its strategy. And in fact, um, Amy's associate, uh, Charles, he gave an interview to the Financial Times. He said, look, I'm not asking for Exxon to become a renewable energy company. This is not what we're about. So I wonder how much of a change is it really going to be? Yeah, well, I mean, 
activist investors have tried for years, whether it was like nuns and friars um, trying to get the shareholder votes at the Exxon meetings. Um, just decades, people have tried to get on the Exxon board and to get the Exxon board to focus on climate change. So I do think um, this is probably a big deal to have that activist investor come in and win at this company that had been sort of untouchable by activists for a long time. Um, I, it seems like now, actually, it will be easier to bring climate proposals and diversity proposals um, to votes at companies. So I think um, we'll see even more of that and people will be studying this tactic to try and get companies to change broadly. Um, so I think that was just a big moment in terms of shareholder power and showing companies what shareholders really care about right now. Um, and that's, and Ed, that's the, the sea change. There was that's a group really that went to change. Duke Energy and they didn't have to go through the whole process. Duke just said, OK, you know, who are your board nominations? Let's discuss it. And we have uh, three new board members at Duke uh, as well. And so... Our final point, then, uh, our final incident of 2021 that we think is significant is the Texas power crisis, the big freeze that Texas suffered in February of this year, and the blackouts that lasted for several days. I guess my feeling about this partly is it's significant in some really quite complex ways that... um, are going to play out for a long time. I think it's one of the things where we have, um, we know what happened. We know um, why there was a blackout in Texas. It was largely because of the gas-fired power plants failing. And then to a subsidiary extent, after that, it was problems with coal and with wind. But in terms of what it means for the energy transition, and I guess the importance of making sure that the transition is as smooth as possible, and that we can keep those fossil fuel plants and supplies running and providing the energy that people need while we shift to lower carbon forms, I think that's something which is still going to be uh, have to be explored and thought about for a long time to come. But what do you think? What I mean, uh, Amy, what, what's your, uh, what are the lessons you well, drew from Well, I mean, Texas? I think the lesson from Texas, which isn't what some of the politicians took from it, is that all energy forms, we've seen problems. We've had water shortages that turned off nuclear temporarily. We know that natural gas has been disrupted by um, weather, whether it's hurricanes for offshore production or whether it's the freeze that happened in Texas. Um, So the idea that it's just there was a period of time in the UK where it wasn't windy for a handful of days and that was a problem or whether it was the hydro uh, was affected by a drought in China and that caused huge energy shortages. You know, we know across the whole spectrum um, there is no so-called safe fuel. Um, And so therefore, we really need to be thinking about system resiliency. We need to be thinking about how we integrate different kinds of fuels and systems together uh, to actually cope with, you know, the variability we're going to have in the climate. And, um, and, and, and I think that if what people take away from these crises is, oh, we can't, we have to stay with the old technology, that could be a disaster because the old technology is not working, right? But what we have to think about, you know, how do we build new systems uh, that integrate what we have with improvements that can take us forward? Emily, last word for you. Yeah, I think this was really the top energy story of the year was Texas. We've talked so much over the years in resiliency about storms, about heat waves, um, about wildfires. You know, this was a a freeze wave, uh, 
winterization was the top issue and that, you know, there wasn't adequate winterization of the gas supply and getting that through. So I think it just showed that resiliency can happen in any, can be an issue in any season. Um, Resiliency is something we really need to focus on incentivizing people to address when they're upgrading energy. Yeah, a great point to end on. Thanks very much indeed. Unfortunately, that is all we've got time for. But uh, thank you, Amy. Thank you, Emily, both very much indeed for joining us. Thanks very much to you for watching and listening. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Please do let us know what you think. You can find us on Twitter. We're at The Energy Gang. And you can also find me. I'm at Ed underscore Crooks. And as I say, this is the last Energy Gang podcast for the year of 2021, but we'll be back again next year when we'll be bringing you all the latest from the world of energy. Until then, goodbye.